Welcome to Moxpong Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Jeremy Chang, and today I'm joined by Ingo. Hi. Um, so Ingo, our, our uh, guest today is Dr. Valentina Emiliani, who's been really been pushing forward the, the tools and uh, techniques that can be used for uh, what she's calling a class of tools, uh, methods mm-hmm. called circuit optogenetics. Um, and this is one of those things that, uh, one of these sort of broad areas that your lab is uh, quite interested in. Right. Yeah, in our lab, uh, in Dr. McLean Bolton's lab, we actually use uh, circuit mapping uh, to basically in a in a disease model context where we uh, try to address the question and understand the question of how certain genetic mutations that are associated with autism spectrum uh, alter or change the wiring and activity patterns in brain regions, in our case, mainly the amygdala. Uh, and then how these, like I said, how these uh, genetic alterations uh, basically... Yeah, shape shape the circuit sure. basically. Right, and and so on the podcast we've had a couple guests now uh, who've sort of tackled this from a structural standpoint using electron electron microscopy to do connectomics. But you guys are really sort of interested in not only what's talking to what, but also how things are talking, right? Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, when you when you think of a of a circuit, it's it's not just one neuron that is connected to another. You know, we have. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of inputs to one single cell and they can be all different. We're not talking, we're not saying, it's not just, you know, excitatory inputs. We also have inhibitory inputs. So when we, in our case, when we talk about circuit mapping, we want to understand uh, which input is, for example, predominant uh, over the other. How does that shape the response and activity of the cells that we record from? In this case, we use an uh, electrophysiology approach combined with uh, temporal focusing circuit mapping to read out uh, the inputs to the cell we're recording from, and then basically some say how the circuit, the local circuit in this case, is uh, shifted or shaped one way or another. Right. So, uh, as I said, our, our guest is sort of pushing forward the technology in this department, uh, in this area. And so we'll talk a little bit with her about circuit mapping, the sorts of questions that, uh, these techniques can, can answer, uh, dive into optogenetics, holography, and then at the very end, uh, talk a little bit about interactions between physicists and biologists. So with that, uh, we'll, uh, toss it to our interview. Um, so I want to kick off with uh, circuit mapping and circuit optogenetics. So uh, can you briefly explain what what do you need for uh, for a successful optogenetic circuit mapping experiment? So what are the what are the tools you would need to do an experiment like that? So actually, you need um, <clears throat> a combination of, of many many things together. So you need to work on the illumination approach. Uh, you need to, to work on the opsin engineering and also you need the technology of laser to have enough light. Okay, and then all these things has to be combined together to try have at the same time the precision to uh, control the activity of a single cell or a multiple cell by keeping single cell resolution. You need to have the temporal precision to, to be able to control exactly when the activity that you evoke with light is going to happen. And you need to, to go in depth. And so you need to face with scattering, 
and you need eventually to control many targets at the same time in large volume. And so this will require also to have la uh, laser light to enough power to, to reach multiple targets. So you need all these things together. So when we talk about circuit optogenetics, it's kind of a conceptual leap from what people have classically done with optogenetics. Uh, what is the sort of thing that sets circuit optogenetics apart from, um, I guess, some of the other other methods that just, um, I guess, the, the, the this idea of, uh, I mean, there is a, a notion of cell specificity in, in your manipulation as well. How does that sort of take you beyond just cell type specificity? So in a way, what we named circuit opt optogenetics uh, is uh, really a combination of techniques that enable to control a single of multiple targets independently in space and time. Okay, so that, that give you the possibility of uh, really control the activity independently of on the different targets. While if you just go for a sort of wall region of optogenetics with what is done in many experiments, where you shine light on large region, you get cell specificity in the sense that your genetic target targeting uh, assure that only a specific cell type is, is going to be activated, but you cannot independently control the activity of genetically identical cells. So we've thrown around the word optogenetics and manipulating and controlling neuronal activity. Uh, can you circle back really quick and explain how optogenetics in general works and what is it good for this tool? Actually, if you, if you want to enter in a, in a, in a phase where you manipulate circuits, actually, you you need two components. You need to to look at the activity of the circuits, and you need to be able to manipulate or mimic or modify this activity. Okay, so the the imaging or the reading of uh, the circuit activity is something that has been solved somehow with the development of the activity indicators, calcium indicator, voltage indicators. And uh, and so we know that today, if you combine those indicators with uh, uh, two photon, now even three photon excitation, we can uh, record in a very precise way the activity of these circuits. And now, what the optogenetics is 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 solving also is the. Uh, the challenge of being able not only to, to look at what is happening, but also to uh, actively control or modify what the circuit is doing. And so the first uh, uh, challenge that uh, has to be solved to do this with light was to make neurons sensitive to light. And this is what optogenetic was, uh, optogenetic has solved. So uh, now we have this uh, photosensitive uh, uh, channel or pump that in reaction to light uh, can uh, activate or inhibit um, the activity of, of neuronal cells by uh, producing a photovoltaic currents in the cell. And so this was the, the most important part, to make neurons sensitive to light. And then the next step was to uh, to develop uh, approaches that can send light in the region that you want to. And there's, there's, there's quite a few advantages to using light to simulate neurons, right? Like, so like traditionally, when you think of uh, simulation in the brain, you think of, you know, an electrode is threaded into the brain and uh, then electrical current is delivered to the brain and you get uh, activity that way. But what are some of the advantages you get when you uh, make 
neurons photosensitive? In, in principle, one of the, the main advantages is that light should be less invasive than using electrodes. And uh, then there are other problems in, in respect to the toxicity of the opsin. So we cannot say that this is a, I mean, that we have completely solved the problem of, of invasiveness, but at least it's less invasive than mm -hmm. having electrodes. So, for example, you can think of re-stimulating the same, the same cell several times to follow the evolution of a certain process during time. And also the uh, the capability of uh, controlling activity of multiple targets is something that we can do with electrodes, but without the specificity of the cell type. While if you do this with light, you can pre precisely target multiple multiple cells without the need of planting using multiple, multiple electrodes. So it's also, I would say, uh, is just to, to have a short answer, is the promise, of, the promise of using light instead of electrodes is because you can be less invasive and also you can reach a large number of targets in, lar in, in large volume. Okay. There's also a, a time component to this, right? Because I guess I, mean, I let off with electrodes, but you know, pharmacology is also another way of manipulating activity in the brain. And yeah. at least with light, it seems like there's there's right. a temporal component to this as well. Right. Just on a side, uh, if anyone knows the podcast Stuff You Should Know, they just released an episode on optogenetics. It's kind of a very broad, uh, naive way of uh or simple way of explaining optogenetics um so if anyone is interested in that the analogy they used and we can totally add this, edit this out i was just <laughs> super excited about yeah, this that's good the analogy they used is uh with optogenetics uh, imagine you look at new york city and you want to just look at all the drivers in new york city but you want to only target ferrari drivers optogenetic is a tool that would actually able enable you to just look at those and make them basically go just on the side. I was super <laughs> excited when I drove to work this morning and heard this episode. So wh where did you hear this? Uh, the podcast is called Stuff You Should Know. Ah. And they released an episode on uh, basically on optogenetics. Ah, nice. Walking through the entire concept, where it came from, how they developed it, and so on and so forth. Ah, that's Very good. interesting. That's good. Um, what I wanted to ask you about is in your talk, you mentioned, so when a... When a researcher wants to do circuit mapping experiments, uh, asking the question of connectivity in a certain area between different cells and so on and so forth, uh, it's important to restrict channel rhodopsin, so the iron uh, channel that is activated by light you mentioned earlier, to the soma of a neuron. Uh, can you explain why it is important to restrict this protein into the soma instead of having it everywhere expressed in the cell? So this is something which is important for all the kind of application where you want to get a true single cell resolution. And the reason for that is because, okay, today with different complementary approaches, we know that we can precisely shine light on a single target. So we can precisely select which target we want to illuminate. And by creating an illumination spot which has the size of the target. Okay, so when, when I say the target, I mean the soma of the target. But now, even if you uh, can very precisely shape the illumination volume, th this won't be, uh, there will be always a certain, a limited size, a limited volume of your illumination uh, spot. And it's very likely that 
in this volume, you, you do have the soma that you have targeted, but also the processes from the surrounding cells, the dendrite and axon from the surrounding cells. And uh, uh, if the expression of those other cells is, is strong enough, uh, it might be enough just to heat a small part of, uh, of dendrite and have those other cells be excited. And so you, you cannot really control, even having a very precise illumination volume, how many cells you can artifactually activate. And so for that, uh, for the, the kind of application where it's important just to, to see the target and to define how many targets you are illuminated, it's very important to get a true single cell resolution and so to solve this, this artifactual activation. And this is something that has, has, it has been solved, or, or let's say we are on the way to solve this problem now with this soma-targeted opsin because they, uh, these are, uh, is, there are strategies to confine the expression of the opsin only into the soma so to to reduce the spreading of the opsin in this dendrite and axon. And so even if you have process for, from other cells crossing the illumination volume, those cells are not going to be activated. And so you are on the way to get a single uh, cell resolution, a true single cell resolution. I think maybe it's worth asking the question, um, people have been using optogenics now for almost a decade, but it seems like some of this single cell stuff really s sort of... Um, it's only sort of coming into maturity, uh, you know, 10 years later. What were sort of the hurdles to, to getting to this, um, to, to getting optogenics to the point where you could get single cell specificity? I guess this is, uh, um, you'd mentioned using uh, single photon and two photon, right? So uh, what were the, was it as straightforward as I'm gonna express my, my channel and then use two photon excitation to get activity or were, were there any hurdles in, in the way there? So, okay, so to, uh, to be on the way to get single cell resolution, yeah, the first step was surely to replace single photon with two photon because mm -hmm. if you want to reach a single target deep, deep in the brain, the main challenge is that you need to face scattering. What does it mean to face scattering? It means that the light is going to be scattered around. And so even if you have a very precise spot, the time that this, this light propagates through the sample, the spot is completely destroyed. Okay, so, and because these effect is uh, correlated to the wavelength. The longer is the wavelength, the more we can penetrate with the light. And so replacing visible light with two photon excitation enables to go deeper. Okay, so this was the first step. And now the, we know that the, using a two-photon microscope, you can produce, can produce a very precise uh, illumination spot, and then this spot can propagate in, in scattering tissue. But what it turned out is that if you use this small spot to uh, evoke uh, a response in a neurons with an opsin, in most of the case, they, because those, those spots are very small, so we say they are diffraction limited, uh, there are not enough photosensitive channel that can be illuminated by those small spots. And so in most of the case, this configuration was not enough to evoke an action potential. So the very the second challenge was to find alternative approach to use to photon excitation for optogenetics, and which basically uh, 
enables to 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 open more channel okay so then this was done either by moving this small spot through the cell body or to do the sort of wavefront shaping where instead of having a small spot you you make a larger spot of the size of a cell okay so this was one of the first points so how can we increase the number of, of channel that we illuminate during the photo simulation and uh, then uh, the second point was uh, to be able to not only control the activity of a single cell, but be able to control the activity for multiple cells. And then if you keep uh, the scanning approach and this number of cells become 10, 50, 100 cells, then you have a problem with the temporal resolution because a scanning approach means a situation where you sequentially go from one target to another one takes time. And so this requires to find way to not only illuminate a single cell, but multiple cells possibly simultaneously. And so this was the, uh, the issue solved by the holographic approach, mm -hmm. which enables to multiplex the illumination, uh, the, the illumination spot in space. And, but the problem of illuminating many targets at a cer certain time with respect to illuminate them sequentially is the power. Okay, so if you sequentially illuminate multiple targets, all the power that is coming out from your laser can be used in each of these spots. But now if you want to illuminate 100 targets at the same time, you have the power coming out from your laser has to be divided by the 100 targets. And so at a certain point, the limit starts to be the power available in this, in this experiment. And so the third important thing that happens is that now there are more and more powerful laser where we now have a 40, 60, 80 watt uh, of power. And so now the multiplexing, the excitation is not an issue anymore. So all these things has to come at the same time in, in a certain way. I mean, so, so one of the things you had brought up is uh, in the multiplexing, this idea of holography and... Um, I think it was interesting because uh, your your roots kind of started in physics, but you also spent some time uh, working on optical tweezers. And it, was that sort of the genesis for looking at how holography could could uh, play a role in optogenics? And I guess before that, what exactly is an optical tweezer? Yeah, exactly. So. Um the, the yeah the ver the the very first uh, experience I had with holography was uh, when I was expected to build up an holographic optical tweezer. So in optical tweezers, the idea is to use the light to uh, trap small object. Okay, and this is something you can do, uh, providing that the object you want to trap has a refractive index uh, higher than the surrounding medium, and so there are. Uh, um, in, in this case, if you use a strong focalized beam, it, you can demonstrate that the, the, this object get trapped to the to the to the spot. And what does it mean that get trapped is that if you move your your spot around the object, will follow the positioning of the laser. And so at the beginning, I was. Um, expected to develop uh, an optical tweezer system to investigate the uh, mechanotransduction in, in cells. And so the idea was to to build up a sort of system as you have multiple finger and you want to touch the cell at different position and see uh, as a function of the strength that you apply on the membrane, the recruitment of specific uh, proteins. So then doing that, uh, I discovered that the cell is now completely planar, that has a three-dimensional profile. And so my multi-spot optical tweezer became an holographic optical tweezer because of this 
specificity of being able to to produce the multiple spots so this multiple finger in 3d and uh, and then I actually this was in a lecture that I attended at the imaging course in Cospring Arbor where I went to give electron optical tweezer and in the same course I discovered the uncaging and the fact that actually we can use light also to manipulate the brain and uh, and so this is why I had the idea of using uh, the holographic approach not to trap the beads and so to mechanically perturb the cells, but more to remove the beads, change the wavelength, and use the same approach to to do a sort of three-dimensional uncaging. And then a few years later, we start to hear about optogenetics, and so then was the obvious uh, extension of what uh, we were doing with uncaging. Yeah. Maybe let's circle back really quickly. Uh, how do you generate a hologram in general? Can you explain that in sort of a um, or, or what is a hologram, right? Like, yeah. I mean, typically we think of holograms, we think of sort of those, the reflective things on an ID card or, or that sort of thing. But um, yeah, what, if, if you were to, to explain what a hologram is, what, what is it? <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, the, the basic idea of holography was really many, many years ago was to develop an approach that enables uh, with light to create a shape of, of an object without the object. Okay, so this is uh, something that... Uh, then it, it has been largely used in a science fiction movie where you, you are familiar with the fact that we, with the light we can create the shape of a, of a person or of, of something. And so... Um, no, but it's impossible to explain. <laughs> I mean, okay, so maybe I'll, I'll throw an, an idea about what a hologram is out and maybe, maybe you can tell me how I'm wrong. Uh, I mean, the way I've always... So I, I trained as an electrical engineer, so I took optics and stuff. The way I always thought of a hologram is it's sort of like a snapshot of an evolving, it's kind of like a snapshot of a movie, right? So if you think of light as a movie, you're taking a frame of that movie that tells you how it's going to progress in time. And so what you're trying to do is basically, uh, yeah, you're trying to basically shape, uh, recreate that movie in light. Is that a good way to think about it? I mean, it's kind of a, it is kind of a difficult concept, right? It, yeah, it is difficult because actually the, the point is that you want to recreate with light a shape of a physical object, and uh, we, and and you do this by recording a, an interferogram. Okay, so actually an hologram is an interferogram. What is an interferogram? An interferogram is a sort of snapshot of the face modification that the object will induce in, in a certain beam. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now the problem is that when the light light goes goes through a certain object, what happens is that the object is modifying what we call the wave front of the light. So it's modifying how the light propagates. Mm -hmm. And if you want to recreate this object, you should know how this wavefront is modified. 
And the way of knowing this is to let, let this beam interfering with a beam that you perfectly know. So then because you record interferogram and you know the reference beam, you can retrieve how the, the unknown object was deforming your beam. Mm. So somehow the hologram, yeah, I agree with you, we can think of the hologram as sort of snapshot, but not only of, of the propagating beam, but a snapshot of the interference that your propagating beam is creating with a reference beam. Mm-hmm. And now when you have this hologram, if you illuminate the hologram with your reference beam, you are, you are going to recreate either the perception of the object if you are looking through the hologram or the physical uh, shape of the object if you if you record with a, with a camera what the reference beam is producing after propagating through the holograms. So today when we look on the on the driving card, what we see is the virtual image of the object that has been recorded inside, while in, in the holography that we use with microscopy, we really use the real part of the hologram. So we really use what the uh, the reference beam is going to recreate and go through the going through the hologram. And and there's I guess there's a, an added wrinkle to what you're doing as well because you are dynamically changing that hologram. Um, right. So, to, yeah. Right. Today, uh, actually, we don't simply speak about holography, but with uh, we speak about computer-generated holography, because with respect to the the original version of holography, or with respect to the hologram that we are used to to see, the the, the hologram actually is a dynamic screen, and because it's a dynamic screen, we can sequentially project multiple holograms, and so actually have an animation. Of the of the shaped light. Uh, so I think I'm more of the biologist here, okay. so I feel obligated to <coughs> ask the biological questions. Um, so, if I understand correctly, this tool and holography eventually will allow you to do uh, circuit mapping in vivo. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but. So I'm wondering what are kind of the what are the goals or biological implications of using this technique and tool uh, in vivo, for example, in vivon, uh, we use in Dr. Bolton's lab uh, temporal focusing and uh, optogenetic circuit mapping in a, in a disease context where we ask, you know, what are the different wiring patterns and um, uh, you know differences in activity uh, within an, in a population, and uh, you know in a disease model in the wild type. So how can we extrapolate kind of that into um, you know into uh, in vivo uh, circuit mapping or even in um, yeah just generally like what are, what are the some of the ideas behind this uh, this tool and experiment? What can we do with it and the questions that we, that we can address with that? So in general, you mean what what can we do having the precision of these uh, circuits optogenetics? Yes. Right. So yeah, for sh- sure, I think one of the first application that is, I think, is doable now with what the technique can give us is to start mapping the connectivity of the circuits. And now the question why in vivo and not in vitro, because for sure you in vitro you, your system is not as intact as it would be in vivo. And uh, the, what is interesting is also with uh, now the new devices that we have access to a relatively large volume. So with respect to what was done before in connectivity experiment using electrodes, now you can really think of probing many, many possible presynaptic cells in a fast way using light. 
And because I think we are on the way of have a near cellular resolution now, this, this mapping can be also done in a relatively precise way. And then uh, what else, the other uh, kind of application you can uh, do by manipulating in such precise way the circuits is, for example, to start asking how many cells, how many elements in a circuit is important to activate to, to control behavior or to, to evoke a certain microscopic response. And uh, this is also something which is which is very interesting. Also, in a long-term project, if we people start to think of sort of a, a brain-machine interface, okay, if uh, if we know that there is just a limited number of neurons that has to be controlled, this of course will simplify also the kind of interface you want to build up. And um, also, in more or less in the same idea, is known that there are. Uh, not all the cells in a circuit have the same role. So there are some cells that have a driving role. There are the hub cells. And so a very efficient way of testing the existence of demonstrating the existence of those cells is really to be able to, to touch them, to illuminate them in a very precise way and see if, really if there are some of them that can control the activity of the entire network. And uh, yeah, I would say that these are probably the most uh, uh, straightforward application that I would see for these circuits up to genetics. And I guess, so how, would, how do you see, like, a, uh, you know, take the hub cell example uh, experiment, like, what, how would you see that sort of experiment going on? What are the sort of steps that you would take to get to the point where you can say, this is a, this is a hub cell? I mean, I think, I guess what I'm really asking is, uh, you want to you want to photostimulate cells, but how do you know which cells to photostimulate? But there are a few ways of them, so it depends now which kind of of region you are looking at. But you could, um, for example, by performing calcium imaging, first do a sort of connectivity map where you can assess which are the one that you think are highly connected, and then, for example, to 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 see if by illuminating those cells, uh, you have a microscopic effect on the network that you won't have by illuminating the less connected one. Um, maybe a little bit more of a broader question and a question that kind of encourages speculation. Where do you see this technique or these tools go like what do you think so like just thinking like the sky's the limit where can you go with that so you mean which are the next technical challenges or yeah that, that and you know what are future uh tools that could be developed to uh you know help with with the current challenges that that we see in holography so what what i think is that uh okay there is always space to to improve a technology, but I would say that today, from the optical point of view, we can be we can be very precise on where to send the light, and we because of those powerful lasers, because of these devices which are more and more uh, fast and more and more. Um, um, 
Yes, uh, is uh, we can really excite many targets in a very precise way, and then plus the somatic and the fast topsy, we can have a very precise control of the spiking activity, and uh, in millimeter cubic volume. So from the optical point of view, I think we are on the way of well controlling what is happening when we send the light in the sample. What I think uh, still uh, probably could be improved is the, the homogeneity in the expression. That could be one of the main challenges now to be solved because uh, uh, if you want to excite 100 cells, you cannot test one by one that exactly you have a certain jittering, a certain latent. So somehow you have to, to believe on your preparation. And so you can characterize at a certain power with a certain option, which are the temporary solution you can get. But then the more the expression is homogeneous, the more you can believe that this is going to happen at each position where you place the light. So I think that the, the homogeneity in the expression of the of the opsin is now a key point to be solved. And for the which problem is going to be solved now by using transgenic lines. So this is something that it would be really important now to have transgenic line with some of targeted opsins. And another issue that uh, is uh, an important challenge for non-optical experiments, which means combining uh, light for reading and for controlling neuronal activity, is the crosstalk so that the imaging laser can also uh, activate the opsins. And so for that, there are multiple solutions that are coming out now to use red-shifted opsin with blue-shifted uh, indicator or the other way around. But still, I mean, a, a combination that gives a completely zero crosstalk is not yet there. So this is also something that has to be, at least has to be well characterized. I, so there are solutions existing now, but uh, one has to really characterize what, what your preparation is uh, is doing. Um, and then from and then it, it depends on the direction where people want to go, but if we want really to think one day to uh, mimic in a sort of closed loop control what the activity is evoking in your system, then probably also on the reading part, the indicator should become more uh, fast. So to really be able to optically detect a single spike in a very precise way, in a very fast way. So I don't know if this is uh, probably the uh, will require to find clever way to to do to photon voltage imaging as well. So we can really read and play uh, in a very fast way the activity of the brain. And then there is all the all the freely moving business also. So are we going to do all this wave from shaping also in freely moving animals, which will require to control the propagation of the, those beams through the fiber, to to send the wave front through an optical fiber? So this is another big challenge from the photonics point of view. I mean, just just in that list of uh, sort of hurdles that are yet to overcome, it's it's. I mean, it, it's very striking that this seems to be a, an intersection of a lot of different disciplines, right? You have uh, the molecular biologists who are engineering these rhodopsins. You have the, the physicists uh, who are building the optical setups, uh, the neuroscientists who are trying to answer a biological question with it. Um, I mean, your lab is split between uh, physicists and neurobiologists. What is, what is that sort of like? Yeah, you you you're right. This this is something really special of this field. Now the need to have many disciplines together, and 
which, as you said, includes photonics and include molecular biology, include neuroscience. So this is a is is probably the difficulty, but also the beauty of this field to to require so many disciplines together. And uh, for me, I think was probably the most difficult part of my career was to assemble a lab where I have those two, uh, three even, because I have physicists, engineers, and neuroscientists. Mm -hmm. And this took a while because at the beginning, I mean, this, first of all, you can't have just a biologist in a group of physicists or the other way around. So they each of them want to have his small subgroup. And so this unfortunately means to have a big lab. And... Uh, and then you have to, 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 to teach to these people to live together so that uh, okay, physicists don't feel to be the technician of biologists and the biologists don't feel to be the technician of the physicists. But once this first barrier is passed, then it's, I think it's very exciting because uh, at a certain point when the, the feeling that being together allows to go faster is, is accepted, then, then, then it's really exciting. So also because, uh, okay, in the progress report, in the meeting that we have in the lab, physicists need to speak in a way that biologists can understand, and, and the same, the biologists need to speak in a way the physicists can understand. And so this is a very good exercise also because you to really make an effort to, to explain what you're doing. And so for the biologists, it's very important to explain to the physicists that you can't just do an experiment once. You have to do at least five, ten times. This is something that for physicists is absolutely <laughs> unacceptable. And, and the physicists also have to explain that, okay, they're not only there to align a laser. I mean, the building up a microscope is also science. It's also complicated. It's also take time. So, but it's, it's very exciting. It's very exciting to have those people together. So I'm curious, did you use lab meetings and progress reports uh, and communication tools between physicists and biologists to kind of break down the barriers between them, uh, to make them each group understand how the other group thinks? Like, I'm curious, what, what kind of, you know, what did you do in your lab to kind of merge them all together to align them on this, you know, combined goal? Yeah, so I think that in my lab now we don't, speak anymore of, of groups, I think. I think we, we feel to be in the same lab now. And um, when we have this progress report, uh, uh, there is really an effort in, in, in simplifying the story, so at least in, in, in giving a long introduction, okay? So, which makes our progress report longer than probably in a normal lab because you cannot just go straight on presenting your data, which we have every time to remind a little bit what is behind. And sometimes we also have some spontaneous uh, tutorial. So somebody, some biologists decide, okay, now we are tired of your question. So we will, you come and we'll explain what is an action potential, okay? And then the physicists do the same, okay? Okay, now we, we will explain you why uh, liquid crystal can produce an hologram. So this is more on the spontaneous uh, initiative of the peoples. And yeah, so it's, it's not something that is really forced to, but I think they also, for them, it's much easier if the other is understanding what, what they are doing. So, because normally in each project, there is at least one physicist and a biologist. And so those two people, uh, the more they can understand each other, the quicker they can go. So it definitely sounds like a very enriching environment mm -hmm. for everyone. Uh, I'm curious, you, uh, you started off as a physicist. Um, you got your PhD in physics. Uh, how did you 
transition into neuroscience. So what got you interested in neuroscience in the first place? And then why uh, and how did you do the switch that ultimately led into leading the group and doing the experiments in science you do right now? Yeah, so it's true. So I, I'm, a, I'm a physicist and I did for a long time optical properties of uh, quantum confined systems. So this was my PhD and also my postdoc in Berlin. And uh, it's something that was, I mean, it was super interesting, but it's true that I found at a certain point that uh, the question that you have in neuroscience were, were for me were probably more uh, more interesting than what I was doing in in, in practice in in my in my in my project and so for me the the ideal combination would have been to try to to contribute to answer these big questions still having an optical approach you know? so because actually what I really like too is to to design an experiment okay so if this, this experiment has to be designed to to monitor the carrier transport in quantum wires or to image a spine in, a, in vivo animals, then I mean, the, what I really like is to design the experiments. And so at a certain point, I really thought that uh, uh, it was a, what a good challenge to use my background in optics to, to contribute to, to solve this, this, this big question that you have today in neuroscience. And so then how this which happens, okay, this happens slowly. So I, as I told you before, it was this uh, intermediate phase on optical tweezer, and then I transitioned into neuroscience. What was, uh, I mean, I guess we talked a little bit about how in your lab there was, there's a sort of language barrier in terms of how people approach uh, these questions. What, what was sort of um, that leap from being a physicist to now asking sort of more neuroscience-y questions. What were the sort of uh, things that you, I guess, had to teach yourself or learn from other people about about what uh, how neuroscience is, is run? So um, I, even if I, yeah, my lab is highly interdisciplinary and I'm really involved now in developing approach for neuroscience, I would still define myself as a physicist. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that I'm yet in the position or that I will ever be in the position of asking myself some question, okay? So what I, I think I'm trying to do now is more to have the, the right language to, to talk with neuroscientists and also to, to catch which are questions that I think are more interesting than the other and try to, to propose a solution for that. So I'm, I'm, I still feel myself a lot on the physics side. Okay, maybe I'll flip that question then. So, from a from a physicist perspective, what are the hurdles? Um, what are what are the ways the neuroscientists can better frame their their questions so that a physicist or someone who's outside of not not sort of uh, ingrained in neuroscience can really understand what they're trying to uh, to answer? I mean, are do you do you often f find that um, in your conversations with other folks about their work, you get you know, lost in the jargon, or, or is is it? Do you feel like people are generally giving a, a good uh, representation of what they're doing? Okay, this depends. Depends on the people. Mm -hmm. Depends on the context. Depends on uh, yeah, which kind of interaction you have with people. No, I think that in 
in some cases, the questions are clear, are clear, especially if you have enough uh, background to start understanding this, this kind of language. What, what sometimes I think could be improved from the neuroscience side is to, um, to make an, an effort in really understanding what a technique can or cannot do. Okay, so because this is probably what is, uh, uh, but on, on both sides uh, actually. So from the from the neuroscience, yes, I think sometimes before starting to say, okay, I I heard about this super cool technique, I wanted, and I, I I go for that. And to really think, do you really need? Do you really need all the multiple uh, super fancy things that this technique can do for your specific mm -hmm. question? So I think that sometimes would be really important to. Take some time to understand what you can or not do with a certain approach and then see uh, which kind of question you can ask on the base of what the technology can do. And, uh, and on the physics side, sometimes also we develop super sophisticated approaches and sometimes, you know, biology sometimes is much more dirty, so you don't need to be so precise so sometimes we are too maniac maniac in improving 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 yeah. and probably you at certain point you should stop improving and just start doing something with this and then going to the next step right the, i think this was uh as one of my undergrad advisors always says do the 10 percent of the work that gets you 80 percent of the way there right <laughs> right so i think we're just about out of time dr miliani thanks for joining us thank you thank you This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Neuropodcast.